0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to this rather long chapter, uh, we pray your blessing upon it, upon our thoughts and meditations here that we might understand your purposes but also rejoice in the provision of a king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I doubt there's barely been a time in our political history in this nation when an elected government, whether state or federal, has been popular and its leaders liked by the people. Ever since our nation began, there's been this conflict, this sense of rubbing each other the wrong way, this sense of distance between those who are in power and those who are not. Now, I didn't say there's never been a time when an elected government was popular. For my understanding is, in the glory days of Robert Menzies from 1949 to 1966, that he was immensely popular and his government highly respected at the time. Maybe it's been mostly downhill from then. And maybe Israel, too, is a case in point, Saul was not a popular first king. Not when compared to David, so greatly loved by the people who brought together and established all the tribes of Israel and Judah under his rule. But as we've seen from our studies in one king so far, David is now dead. And the kingdom has passed to Solomon. Solomon. And Solomon is about to lead the kingdom of Israel into unparalleled days of prosperity, peace and blessing. Days that would never be repeated. Days that the people of Israel may well have looked back on and said, now they were the good days. The really good days. Now as we come to chapter 4 we do so hot on the heels of chapter Three's demonstration of Solomon's wisdom. We saw that in that court case that Solomon ruled over, where a she said, she said situation involving a real life baby was played out before his eyes. And we saw how Solomon, with great wisdom, cut through the stories of the two women to use his sword to cut to the heart of the real mother and reveal the truth. Now, like chapter 4, like many of the chapters ahead of us, this wisdom of Solomon is on display once more. Wisdom that led to prosperity. And this could be seen in everything that Solomon did. In the way he set up his government, in the way he went about commerce and trade, in the knowledge he accumulated, and in the fame that began to spread throughout the whole world at the time. Now the world has seen some brilliant wise people in its more recent history, names like Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton, Alfred Noble, Louis Pasteur. They come to mind among plenty of others. But Solomon's name is up there with those greats and perhaps even greater at the time. All from God, of course all as a result of the prayer that God answered in an abundant fashion, as we will see in these chapters we will soon come to. And this one, which gives us insight into the way his kingdom worked itself out. Three things. Let's consider the people of the king's portfolios in verses 1 to 19. The first six Verses of this section are essentially the staff web page of Solomon's administration. And we're very grateful that Drew ploughed on through the many names that were recorded there this morning. Well done, Drew. These names are the human resources of his kingdom, as distinct from the material riches that we will soon meet. And among the many names of those who feature in these verses are those who are Solomon's right-hand men, priests, secretaries, recorders, commanders, rulers, stewards and officials. The point the writer is getting at here is not only to record the people's names for the sake of posterity, but also to show us that the king had all bases covered. Solomon's wisdom led him to set up a kingdom so that not all fell to him. Tasks were delegated, from the secretaries with foreign-sounding names to translate international correspondence, to the financial recorders keeping account of Solomon's finances, to the chief of staff over his house, even the one with the toughest job of all, the one in charge of forced labour. Now I suspect that we're supposed to read this section with two things in mind. One being the blessing of God and his faithfulness on show and the other, the seeds of sin that are going to unravel all this good later on. See verses 7 to 19 give us an extensive list of the 12 leaders of the various regions who were called upon to provide for the king's table, with each of those leaders having responsibility of feeding the king and his entourage for an entire month per year, under an arrangement, where the whole land was divided up into 12 areas, more or less defined by tribal boundaries. Now, I don't know how... The average Israelite felt about this. "I do know that if any such system was implemented in our state, in order that our premier might be fed and all his cronies, that such a system would not be all that welcome," put it mildly. And when we consider that the burden that the king laid upon his people in this regard only grew and grew as his kingdom grew. That here are seeds of resentment that grow into seeds of rebellion. But yet, these were the early days, and from experience, we know that for any venture to succeed, both order and administration are necessary, whether it's your marriage or your family, your finances or your business, or yes, even the church. Order and administration are necessary. We are told in Scripture that we function best when we work together. And as each part does its part, there is both growth and stability. So at one level, this list of names in the chapter reminds us of the whole body of God's people working together. Some behind the scenes, some more obvious, but all important with respect to the function of the whole Those human resources behind the king. That's you, isn't it? All working together for his glory. That's the church. That's the theory anyway. Second, we see the vastness of the king's wealth in verses 20 to 28. The vastness of the king's wealth. We remember that in 1 Samuel 8... When Israel went to Samuel and asked him, asked Samuel for a king to rule over them, he replied to them in no uncertain terms. A king would take their sons and put them in his army. A king would take their men and make them work in his garden and make weapons of war. A king would have their daughters working for him in his kitchen. A king would take the best of their fields and give them to his servants. A king would take a tithe of the grain and wine for his servants. A king would take a tithe of their servants and his flocks. And the day would come when the ki- the people would cry out to the Lord because the king was taking so much from them, oppressing them. And on that day the Lord won't answer them. That's what Samuel told them. It's all very negative, isn't it? Samuel's warning was that the king would be a great taker and not so much a great giver and that the people would be miserable under his rule. Well, they were that for a time under Saul. Not so much under David, but definitely not under Solomon. At this point in Solomon's reign, we are told that the people were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Happy. Yes, even though Solomon's daily needs for himself and his staff were enormous, which verses 22 to 23 explain for us, This snapshot of the king's daily needs. Huge amounts of flour, twice as much meal, ten fat oxen, twice as many pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowls. Now I admit this sounds like a lot, but apparently this is not a lot compared with other ancient Near Eastern kingdoms it was fairly standard providing enough food to feed four to five thousand people every day now at this point we could compare that to Jesus there's contrast there isn't there she consider Solomon's feasts on one hand and Jesus living near the poverty line on the other Or you could say another contrast is that Solomon's rich and luxurious feasting was paid for by the people while Jesus, on the other hand, as the true king, provided people, 5,000 people, food at no cost as he fed them in the wilderness. And while Solomon's table was laden because of the labours of his people, the feast that Jesus will provide in heaven will not only be far more luxurious and abundant than Solomon's, but will be paid for at his own expense. He did not insist on kingly rights. He did not force us to provide for him but he met us in our poverty with his riches. Now there's more to Solomon's abundance than just food on the table, there's peace in the nation. Verse 24 tells us that Solomon ruled over the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. Most of us, never having lived through a major war, We are peculiar among the generations that have gone before us. War is a terrible thing that ruins the economy, the youth, the family and many other aspects of life. The gift of peace then in this region of the world at this time was extremely rare but that's what they knew as verse 25 expresses it. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, from the north to the south, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. And so again, let's think of the contrast with Jesus. The peace won for us by Jesus our King. We who once were sinners under God's judgment and who are enemies of God on account of his satisfaction of God's law by his death, we are now at peace with God. This peace not only settles our eternal security but peace within us. Solomon established a peace that would evaporate but we have the certainty of his coming To end all things that will usher in a peace that will never end. And then there's more. Not only the abundant food and the abundant peace, we see the abundance of Solomon's armoury, verses 27 to 28. As we read there about 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. With the feed for the 40,000 stalls of horses provided for them. If an average horse eats 7 to 8 kilograms of feed a day, well you do the math for 40,000 stalls of horses. That's a lot of food. And all these horses not only had to be fed, but they stood as a deterrent to surrounding nations, this intimidating armoury ready to attack anyone who tried. Once again, we contrast this with Jesus' final kingdom, where there will be no need for a defence budget, no need for submarines at whatever billion dollars they cost, because there will be no Satan, no sin, No death and no war. Thirdly, in verses 29 to 34, we see the extent of the king's wisdom and we read how this was displayed in his literary output. Cast your eye over these verses and see how he's not just portrayed as a scholar in one field of knowledge, such as science but of all the sciences, not one interest, but of every interest. It's possible that Solomon had many of these gifts and abilities as raw materials from birth, but surely the blessing of God brought them all to the fore, and even more, that whatever he had was used in very constructive ways. His wisdom brought glory to God among the nations, He was able to provide instruction for the people of God. He wrote songs, 1,005. Some of them are in the Bible. There's a whole book called The Song of Songs that puts on display the wonder of married love and two entries in the book of Psalms, 72 and 127. As a believer, he had a great interest in the creation of God and set his mind to considering God's handiwork he was given a full range of the ten talents. And we see at this point he used them all, being fruitful in his service of the Lord his God. Ask if the world has ever seen a mind like this again. And you might come up with Kepler or Copernicus or Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein or C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, you say? One biographer records that C.S. Lewis was, quote, the world's foremost authority in his professional field, medieval and Renaissance English literature. But before his death, he found time to produce first quality works of literary history, history, literary criticism, theology, philosophy, autobiography, Biblical studies, historical philology, fantasy, science fiction, letters, poems, sermons, formal informal essays, a historical novel, a spiritual diary, religious allegories, short stories and children's novels. This showed that he was not a man, he was a world, end of quote. Well Solomon was a world too. And because he was a world, these days became the golden age for Israel. These are the glory days. This is as good as it gets during a time when shadows serve to portray the future realities that Jesus would surpass. But again, as good as it gets, we remember this the one greater than Solomon has come and will achieve, will accomplish a greater fulfillment of all that Solomon achieved. Solomon's kingdom was well organized, but it wasn't perfect. Jesus' kingdom will be perfectly organized, and every effect of sin will be undone in the new creation. Solomon was able to bring about peace, but local and temporary. Jesus would bring a peace that is universal and eternal. The people of Israel knew joy as a result of physical blessing. Jesus will ensure physical and spiritual joy forever. We see many peoples basking in Solomon's wisdom. Jesus will have people from every tribe and tongue benefiting from his wisdom. Solomon contributed to some of the work of scripture while all of the scripture was written by Jesus. Solomon lived in luxury off the backs of his people. We will have an eternal reward because Jesus suffered to secure it and shares his reward with us because of grace. Solomon is wisely renowned, widely renowned as the wisest of all. But Jesus said of himself, Matthew twelve, forty-two, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Well, let's recap and conclude. It seems to me the key to understanding the section is verses twenty to twenty-one. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. As we read through these sections and see the excess in his wealth and the riches of his table, we could focus upon the negative in Solomon. The excesses, the forced labour, the finery, but to do so would miss entirely what God was doing at the time. We need to see Solomon through the eyes of the promises of God, those promises to Abraham that we referred to this morning in Genesis 12, which we reflected upon in relation to his covenant people. Those promises in Genesis 15 in which God defined for Abraham the extent of the land that would form part of his blessing and that his offspring would be as stars of heaven, sand on the seashore. Doesn't that ring a bell? Haven't we just read that the people of Israel were as many as the sand on the seashore? Surely the writer says this to give us a strong clue to the connection between the promises made to Abraham finding fulfilment at this point in time under Solomon. Numerous peoples, wide and vast tracts of land, peace on all sides, blessing to all the nations, as verse 34 says, and the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom. Stop and take note, this is now almost the highest point in the whole of the Old Testament. This is the prosperity that God foreshadowed to Abraham. This is the top of the mountain upon which there is a plateau. And for a time it looks wonderful, delightful, amazing, but not for long if you reach a peak, if you climb to the highest mountain, well, guess what? There's only one way down. But before that comes, let's appreciate the faithfulness of God. Everything that God promised came to pass, not in the sense that everything is fulfilled and there's nothing more to come, not at all, For Solomon himself is only a type of the one who will bring these promises to their fullest extent. Israel itself and all its blessings is only a type of the kingdom that Christ will bring. Under Solomon, Israel knew a partial fulfilment of what was promised to Abraham. But we who belong to Jesus, King Jesus, we will know this kingdom's full realisation and fullness and we are even more sure of the abundance in the promises of God that are yet to be seen for his people. Can you see that? Here is a wonderful glimpse of a partial fulfilment. But for God's people, when Jesus is revealed as king and his rule and reign evident to the whole world, The blessings to be tasted then will be the best ever, far surpassing the glories of Solomon, and making everything that the people in Solomon's day revelled in appear as nothing more than a child's tea party. Are you praying for that? Are you praying for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness? Because the king has plans of his own to set up his throne when he returns. And what great plans they are and what a feast of glory will await us. The glory of King Jesus which he will share with his people for it will be a rule and a kingdom that none of those who are part of will ever find cause to complain. Are you praying for that? The rule of King Jesus and the coming of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, in these verses we thank you for the glimpse of your faithfulness, seen in the blessings that flowed from heaven upon your people. Such prosperity, such food, such abundance, and yet things went sour pretty soon after. Help us as we ponder this to pray that the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus will be swift. Lord, come quickly. Bring in your kingdom, we pray, that the ends of the earth might know of the king who is far greater than Solomon whose wisdom and grace is far more important. Help us to pray, your kingdom come, and help us to work and work and work as though it all depended upon our prayers. We give you thanks that we have a coming king. And we rejoice that his kingdom will be one of great glory. We pray in his name. Amen.